Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, everybody, no matter where you are or what you're doing, thank you so much for tuning into the Global Marketing Show. Another fabulous guest to introduce you today. I, I'm so excited to hear his stories because he's made some different life choices than other people that are in global marketing. So we're going to get some inside scoops. And just to Keep in mind, if you're enjoying this podcast, share it with somebody else. We're downloaded in over 40 countries now, so there's probably somebody in your network you know that has an interest in global business or global marketing or has a business that could be selling internationally. We, we started the podcast to help people figure out how to do it. All right, so today I'm going to introduce Adam Blanco. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me. I am so excited. Let me tell you a little bit more about Adam. He's a multicultural and multilingual executive with experience working in public and private sectors. He launched and managed economic development programs for USAID and worked in Russia as it changed to a capitalistic market. This is so interesting. So tell me, I know a little bit more about your background and you seem to thrive in situations where there's political volatility and changing markets. Why would any organization or person want to launch in such a risky environment? That's a good question, Wendy. I would call it borderline crazy. Um, <laughs> when, when, I, when I first went to Russia, I went as a Peace Corps volunteer. So there was a lot of there was was a lot of idealism involved, and also the idea of going into a an environment where it, it, there were also, of course, economic interests. When one considers the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union, I strongly believe that that there would be huge economic opportunities there. Yes. The risks would be high, I, even today, probably more so today than it was back then. That's another, that's another story. Um, Wait, you, you faded out and, a little bit. You think that the risks are higher today than back then? Let me, let me, let me back, back that up. The opportunities are not as great today as they were back then. Mm -hmm. you know, to do business in Russia today, you really have to have, you really have to have a good link into the government, be it the local government or the federal government. Mm -hmm. The opportunities are not what they were in the in the nineties and the two thousands. So tell me what did it what did it look like? You went over as Peace Corps volunteer. What was your mission in the Peace Corps? We were we were the first group of volunteers to Russia. We were a total of a hundred 102 volunteers, and our mission was economic development. We were sent to advise 
entrepreneurs, do business plans, help them raise capital, advise the local administrations on the privatization process. Although we were not formally involved in that, organizations like IFC, the World Bank, they were much more, they were formally involved in those privatization programs of large enterprises, small businesses, even land privatization. And what was your background to end up being part of this group that went to Russia? I was, I was a banker with Dresdner Bank based in Miami. And when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, First, the wall came down in, in Eastern Europe, and I had asked to be transferred to Germany, but I didn't speak German. Mm-hmm. And in those days, really, Dresdner Bank, Deutsche Bank, the large banks, even the American banks, were not as international as they are today. So I was looking for ways to get to Eastern Europe. Russia was not on my rate originally. That came, that came later when, when I saw an advertisement in the Wall Street Journal for Peace Corps volunteers. And it was specifically for Russia. And I had read a piece prior to that about a up and coming young politician by the name of Boris Nemtsov in the Nizhnyovgorod region, how he was doing reform. And the, I think the tipping point for me was advice that I had gotten from some friends, older friends who had been in the Peace Corps, and a uh, counterpart who had left to open up the office in Russia for his law firm. So those mm-hmm. those were the two those were the two tipping points I would say that that convinced me that that was that was the place to go. So and I always sp- had I always had an international background. I grew up in in a multilingual family. So for me going into that kind of environment was was not unnatural. Right. So you grew up in a family and you learned Spanish, of course English, and then Portuguese. And your father was from the Basque region of France. So My you grandparents were from the Basque region of France and from the Basque region of Spain. Yeah. Okay, so all of your multilingual background had nothing to do with Eastern Europe or Russia. Correct. Yes, correct. But my grandparents were also quite influential in that their 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 political uh, views were were Marxist and anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you felt a little bit of draw to Marxism in Russia. Is that what pulled you over to that area? Or was no, it I didn't. I didn't feel. I didn't feel a draw to Marxism at all, yeah. or 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 anarchism. Although one would say children are anarchists. Um, <laughs> if you're a parent, you agree. <laughs> right. Um, certainly a curiosity, and I think it was more about the unknown and the curiosity of it all. Okay. So now you're a a banker. You apply to go to the Peace Corps in Russia. You get over there. And what's it like? It was was incredible. New culture, new language, wonderful people. 
and to this day, wonderful people in Russia. It's a beautiful country and beautiful people, wonderful culture. It was, you could see the economic hardship, literally people selling their, their silverware, their goods, their, their clothing on the street, literally lined up and people are selling their wares. Think about, think about having $100,000 in your bank account today and tomorrow or in a couple of months you wake up and your $100,000 is worth nothing. And that is what happened to millions of people, pensioners in mid-career, mid-career professionals. So we talk about reinvention. They really had to reinvent themselves. And a lot of them didn't make it. What do you mean they didn't make it? They didn't make it economically. They, you know, they, they never recovered from that, from that loss, many of them. So I, so I think of before the wall came down, Russia was, you were either in the party and you were doing well. And so you tried to sing the party platform and then the bottom falls out. Was it the party executives who didn't do well or it was across the board who seemed to suffer the most? No, the, prime, the party executives, most of them didn't, but your, your average Soviet citizen, and I'm talking about Soviet citizens, not just Russia, Kazakhstan, all over the Soviet Union, um, mm-hmm. they, they suffered. They suffered hardships. Okay, so you're walking into a country that you've got the mass of people. You're talking like the middle class. Yes, and that's right. Lower income earners just it fell out. They had nothing. That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So when the wall fell down, I was actually traveling in Europe um, on an extended time off. I took three or four months and did the backpack and went through Europe. And I got to Hungary and that was about the closest we could get to the to the Eastern Bloc at the time. And I just remember thinking that prices were so random. I mean, I joked with my traveling companion that it looked like somebody sat in a back room and wrote prices and then somebody else went out and just stuck them on things because there was no American value system of what costs more and what costs less. And so here you've got a population that has no money, capitalism starting to come in. How do we even look at that? And, and why would I have experienced this random pricing on goods that seem random to me? Yeah, well, you, you, you don't, you don't the, the economy is, is being completely restructured. Your currency ha- is, has been destroyed. So you literally start from scratch. Your infrastructure, the idea of, of credit to the consumer that took a long time to establish, the infrastructure that supports commercial banking was non-existent in, as, as, we, as we understand it in a um, capitalistic system that didn't exist in Russia. So or how Kazakhstan did, or any what did you do? Like, how countries. do you go in and restore this? I mean, to me, it seems unimaginable to start from scratch with that many yeah. people and that much wealth already in the country. Yeah. Well, a lot of money was, was spent on technical assistance by USAID, 
the European Union, so the IMF, the World Bank. So you had you had armies of consultants and and, and bankers going in to Russia to help them build that infrastructure. And over time, over time, that that know-how was then transferred to them. And they, you know, that they 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 created a banking system. They created the infrastructure. So that. what were you doing in particular when you were there? As well, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I worked with small businesses and I helped them uh, write business plans. And we would take these business plans and market them in Moscow and try to raise money from the likes of the IFC, International Finance Corporation, the EDRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and get investments into those companies. What kind of businesses were you working with? Well, those businesses, it, it varied. A brick factory was one, a machine tool factory that actually was part of the Soviet military infrastructure. That factory in particular was running at 15% capacity and yeah. had laid off all of its workers pretty much. The worker, but the workers were still coming in to work, but they weren't being paid. They could not, they, the factory could not pay them. They didn't have the money to pay them. Wow. Uh, that was a restructuring that I had done together with Price Waterhouse. Part of that restructuring included establishing a Coca-Cola plant. And this was in Nishinovgad. So part of the factory was, the territory was 49 hectares. And we divided up the factory and took a piece of that piece of that territory and built a bottling and distribution plant, Coca-Cola distribution plant there. And that created that created revenues for, for the local administration, created jobs, and it also provided revenues to the to the machine tool factory. However, the machine tool factory also, the technology that they were using was, was, was quite dated. Hmm. Okay, so you're really talking about, you know, the heart of the company, you know, country, when you're talking about brick manufacturing, machine tooling, which just Correct. seems so difficult to believe in the United States that a, a factory like that well, I guess you said they were outdated. They didn't have any money. And so you were able to get the money, partnerships with Coca-Cola, and they were able to restart. Exactly. And that was part of the restructuring. You've got, you've got idle assets sitting there. What do you do with it? Well, you need to put it to work. So dividing up that territory and establishing a Coca-Cola plant was part of that. We also had machine, machine tool uh, traders come in. And they, they bought a number of powerful lathes and machines Europe. And so that was another cash generator for the, for the factory. And they used that money to retool. So you go in to help these companies and you've got a great background to do it. And you've got some resources to support. Yet you speak 
different languages in more that way than one. There's, of course, just the language. You speak English and Spanish, and they speak Russian. And then you speak capitalism, which is a completely different language, too. That, so how did you communicate across the primary you know, spoken language, but then also across these concepts you're trying to get across? Yeah, Wendy, that's, that's a good question. That's a very good question. It was a difficult transition for particularly the Soviet directors. The, the, younger, the younger generation, they were the ones that, that took the reins and tried to, tried to move the country into a more, more capitalist society. Survival. Okay. So they were just, they saw the American consumption or the Western consumption and knew that there was a market economy where I could sell stuff and make money, but I needed to sell stuff to make money. So where am I going to get the stuff to sell? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I would say it was not just American, but European, right. broad capitalism as, as a whole, you know. That's um, why I corrected my, I said, you know, and, U.S., and, but then I said Western, so, but the capitalistic, yeah, good point. And I, and, and I would call, I would call what took place in the 90s unbridled, pure capitalism, which is not very pretty. There's a reason there are regulations. You really didn't have rule of law. Law was the rule of law was being law was be, being being made then, as you as you go through the transition. And so, what kind of? Point. I mean, there's no laws, and laws are there being are made. There are laws, but the laws don't really don't really not conform, but contribute to the environment of transition in capitalism. So what violation of these laws or expectations did you see that could have been most damaging? Taxes. The uh, taxation was was a big issue mm-hmm. in those days. It was very high. It was, you, you really, you simply didn't have rule of law in those days. So taxes were high, but people didn't pay them because there was people no. People didn't pay them. Because they, you didn't, you really didn't have an agency that could collect those taxes efficiently, and and the businessmen always looked for ways not to pay the taxes. Mm-hmm. That then further hurt. There was a the, lack of trust between between the business community and and the government, and the government was very weak. That changed I, today. The government is very strong tax collection today in Russia is very high. There is a level of, of civility, I would say, in Russia today, and there is proper tax collection. Having said that, rule of law is not applied equally. It's quite selective in Russia today. Tell me more about that. The good example of that. The Yukos? Where... Yukos, yeah, Yukos Oil Company is a good example of that, where they were, this was in 2003, I believe, that Mikhail Hadolovsky was, was, was arrested and the, and the oil company was liquidated. 
and it was liquidated on the basis of the pretext was unpaid taxes. Now, that situation could have been applied to many other companies, but it was not. It was applied to the Yuko Soil Company. Okay, so... And they, and they, they, they did nothing, nothing in particular that was different from the other oil companies. So why do you think they were singled out? Because Mikhail Hadorotsky was, was a very powerful man, and he was getting involved in politics, which is something that at the time President Putin had warned the oligarchs not to do. Uh, yeah, politics, focus on your business, and, and that, was, that was the issue. Okay. So now back to um, the communication. So we kind of talked on the capitalistic language is the young people were very motivated to change. So they picked that up. How did you communicate when you didn't speak Russian and you were trying to work at a very high level over there? Well, I had to learn Russian. So in, when, when I started there, the first six, first six months, three months, I'm sorry, first three months, I did go through Russian training. I was, I was posted outside of, of Nishi Novgorod in a smaller city by myself. So I had no choice but to, but to learn the language. And I had to learn it very quickly if I wanted to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And so were there interpreters around at that point or was there much English there being spoken? There were. There were there. I did rely on a few interpreters, particularly when the when the discussions became very detailed. I did. Mm -hmm. um, but over the years, over the 18 years that I spent in Russia and Central Asia, I now speak the language quite well. And in fact, that's the, the, the la lengua franca at our house now ah. is Russian. So. <laughs> Uh, your wife is Russian, you speak it, and then your children do, huh? Exactly. And yeah. so does the dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So you started out in the Peace Corps there, which is only a two-year assignment, typically. Yep, that's right. How that's did right. you decide yeah. to stay longer? Or how did you, or what did I, you transition to? I decided to start my own business after Peace Corps. I did, and it was a consulting business. I had some opportunities to, to join larger organizations, but I decided to start my own business. And I consulted enterprises, small businesses. I would originate the projects out in the regions and take them to Moscow and partner up with larger corporations. A perfect example of that is the is the machine tool factory, which was going, which I had proposed to them a restructuring. I took the deal to Price Waterhouse, and we partnered up to do the restructuring of that factory. The Coca Cola deal in that in that uh, machine tool factory was separate from the restructuring with Price Waterhouse, and that's what I did for a few years. Then the crisis hit in '98, where the global economic crisis hit in August 1998. At that time, the bottom had had fallen out in Russia, if you don't, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And I was and I took a position with with a financial consulting group called 
Financial Services Volunteer Corps in Moscow as their country director. Hmm. Well, actually, my, my first position was in the city of Samara. So I established our office in Samara. Our work was with the Central Bank of Russia. So we worked with the Central Bank in, in uh, bank supervision, prudential supervision, as well as payments and regulation of commercial banks. So what we did was we organized conferences and seminars with the Central Bank in the regions, as well as in Moscow. And so this was mostly for Russian business owners to come and learn? No, this, was, this was specifically for Russian commercial banks and the Central Bank of Russia. So oh, so it was for with, banks to come learn correct. about capitalistic it, financing? Not so much capitalistic financing, but I, I, would, I would describe it as 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 prudential for the central bank, it was about payment system. It was also about commercial bank product, prudential supervision. How do you supervise commercial banking? What are what what do we do in the West? At, mm-hmm. in, what are the what are what are the policies that we we follow, and what are the what are, what are the governing administrative normatives that we follow in in the U.S. How do we apply that to commercial banking? So uh, off on a tangent, my mom went to study the prison systems in China. And so often from the West, we come in thinking, oh, we can we can bring the way we do it in. And she learned a lot of things that they do better, which is a whole other podcast that we could bring to the United States. So I'm curious, here you go to Russia during a time that they're in complete upheaval and they have to learn a bunch of stuff. What do you think that Western capitalistic economies could learn from either what they had to put in or what they're doing now? That's a good question, Wendy. I can, I can say in my time there, I learned more about the United States. I learned as much about the United States as I did about Russia mm-hmm. and Central Asia. We, here in the West, we are quite privileged. You have an infrastructure that's established. You have rule of law that's established. Doing that, establishing an infrastructure that supports an economy today, that's a very, very challenging process when you've got 145 million people and talking about Russia in particular in the 90s and going through to today Russia has Russia has made incredible advancements over the past two over the past three decades in those environments I think what one really needs to understand is they have their way of doing things whether it be Russia whether it be China whether it be Nicaragua or, or Brazil the culture, is it, one needs to take into account the culture and in how they have done things in the past may not be may not be right may not be the best for everyone but there is a system mm-hmm. how do you change that system does that just does that system need to be changed the first question mm-hmm. and if it does need to be changed how do you change that system that's their decision how they do that 
So you had to be very. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I wanted to get you more down into the detail, but I think what I heard is you're coming in as an expert from the United States and these other Peace Corps volunteers as experts in their area, and you're going to tell them how to do it. But what you learned is you can't tell them. You have to work with them to figure out what's going to work in That's their correct. culture and system to help drive the vision of what they That's, want. That's right, Wendy. You, you cannot go into these environments and tell anyone how to do things. You can only advise what are best practices and provide good examples of those. It is up to them to take that information and implement it, execute it the best they can in their environment. Now, which countries have you worked in? Russia, um, Tajikistan. Tajikistan is, a, is, is quite an interesting environment. Nicaragua, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Belarus. And then you're working in the Balkans right now, right? Yes, right now I'm, I'm working in the Balkans. I'm advising a, uh, a digital bank in the Balkans. I also have a client in, in Ukraine that is aerospace related. Those are, those are my two main projects right now. I also have, a, also have a, a clean energy chemical specialty, materials science specialty chemicals business as well. And now what are you doing for these companies? Why would somebody come and hire you? These are relations that I that I had have developed over the past three decades. The the digital bank is someone that I had done business with in Kosovo in 2009-2010. And he's a he's a banker and he's based he's based in London. And they have launched a uh, digital bank in the Balkans. So my knowledge of Kosovo and in the in the Balkans, in particular, given my work there, is what brought him to me. He came to me. Similar situation with the Ukrainian aerospace factory. That's with an American group that is doing business with the Ukrainian factory. It's a very large Ukrainian factory. And they asked for my assistance. And what in, are you uh, doing for them? Helping them negotiate terms. I would say it's not so much the terms of the deal. It's not so much pricing. It's more about translating the ideas in the culture. There are so many, so many miscommunications that happen, particularly by email. If, if you read the email in, in Russian, many, many Ukrainians speak Russian. The, the ideas do not translate literally into Russian. So a lot of it is, a lot of it is relationship building. So that's exactly what Ukrainian. we were talking about before, where you have the subject, which is one language, and then you've got the language, which is another. So right now you're talking about it's not just the language, but it's also understanding the concepts. Correct. That's right. 
to be fluent in, in a language, one really needs to be also fluent in the culture and understand that one can be perfect grammatically in the language, but not really understand what's being said if you don't understand the culture. Yes. It's very interesting because when we go to hire translators, if they've learned their language in the United States and not the country where the language is, the translation is going to be used, we can't, we can't hire them. That's right. <laughs> they have to have an understanding. That's right. That's right. And, and even in Russia, you have, you've got, you have different dialects and for example, in, in the Volga River region in, in Nizhinovgrad versus Moscow, Russian is spoken a little bit differently. And mm -hmm. even all the way down the Volga River down to, in, in places like Rostov-Nadon, um, Samara as well. The perfect example is the river Aka in, in, in Moscow. It's called the Aka, okay, A. In Nizhinovgrad, it's called the Ako, O-K-O, -O, okay? Although it's spelled O-K-A. Mm, <laughs> right. O-K-O. So those, those small changes are important, but more important is really understanding the culture because okay. that's where the language comes from, comes out of the culture. It does. It really does. So tell me more about that. Don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> well you know the, ironically i just uh recorded a global minute we do a social post called the global minute that goes out on facebook and twitter and linkedin every monday and i did one about how if you lose a language you lose that culture too because there's ways you express yourself in your history that if you don't have the cultural like, like they're so intertwined and one of them is there are three three thousand different varieties of potatoes in Peru. My dad sat on the uh, board for the potato center there. And that's how I learned there were 3000 potatoes in the Quechuan language. There's a name for each of the different kinds of varieties. Like we, it, we can't even conceptualize right. and it, that. And it, and it depends on the region where that potato comes from. And they may call it a different, may give it a different name than what you may hear it called in Lima. For example. Yes. Yes. Yeah? And 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 something you pointed out, if you can lose the language, if you lose contact with your culture. My original language, my mother tongue, was Spanish. I didn't learn English until I was five, six years old. Mm -hmm. Today, my Russian is significantly better than my Spanish. Although, having said that, really, what I need is just two, three months. I, I can, I'm fine in Spanish, but it, I don't feel as comfortable in Spanish as I do in Russian. Sometimes when, when I get together with family, the Spanish speaking side of the, of the family, Russian words will come out. I'm going a hundred, hundred miles an hour in Spanish. And then suddenly, boom, Russian, a Russian word will come out. And that's a function of, of, not using the language as much or there's not a word for it i mean i i may have given this example that before in the too. Yeah, yeah my the i grew up in first and second grade in mexico and the word pica means something spicy 
where in English we'd say it's hot. So that could mean temperature hot or spicy yeah. hot. But I like to distinguish between the two. So I always told my kids, you know, oh, this is pica. So they went to school and in elementary school, they're in Spanish class and they came home and they're like, mom, did you know that pica is a Spanish word? <laughs> <laughs> It was just naturally in our vocabulary because we needed a word for it. <laughs> no, that's true. That's uh -huh. true. We 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 often in in our house will will have will have Russian and English mixed up. Happens a lot. Happens a lot. But the primary language at home is Russian. So Spanish primary. and English is Spanglish. I've heard there's a Portuguese and Spanish. Spanish. Yes. What is yes. Russian and English called? A mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, well, we'll have to. Uh, we'll think of that if you're you're listening to this on social media. Put it. Put your suggestion down below. Yeah. So earlier we had talked about you had worked in Russian, Tajikistan, Nicaragua, you know, the Balkans. And, and we were also talking about how, how you have to know the culture to make things work. So you've worked cross-culturally. What, what were the biggest challenges in each of the cultures of the countries that were most different from you? Like, where were the, the biggest struggles? And this is, you know, so think about you're talking to somebody that wants to go to another country to do business or wants to expand internationally. What are what were some of the challenges in the countries that you didn't expect or were surprising? Well, let me let me let me start by let me start with how do you address the challenges? And the best way to address the challenges is to listen. Listen to what they are telling you. Listen to listen sounds odd, but listen to how they live. Look at the environment. The biggest challenge that I had really um, was setting up a microfinance business in Tajikistan. The challenge was finding, finding loan officers. The country had gone through a civil war, a really bloody civil war, where the clans were still, while there was peace, there was still, there was still some bad blood in many parts of the country as a result of the civil war. That civil war had really wiped out a generation of education. The educational system had collapsed. So particularly out in the provinces, outside of the capital of Dushanbe, really it, it was difficult to find loan officers. What do I mean by difficult to find loan officers? Literally people who can who can do mathematics and read basic basic need and that was that was the result of the civil war so what did you do we trained them we 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 looked for them most of the loan officers that i did hire came out of university in in dushanbe some were educated in moscow um, out in the regions we did find we did find a few, they're out there. You just you you just need to you just need to go out there and and find them. And it's not easy. This is true in any, I I believe in any market that is going through a transition. 
Well, even in the United States, there's so many companies that are struggling to hire now. Right. Well, that that's a that's a different discussion entirely, and that's not <laughs> that's not a function of that's that's capitalism being revised is, is the way I, I see mm. it. But that's another that's another discussion entirely. That's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting to the end. I'd love to hear your recommendations for anybody who's thinking about global expansion, particularly into the politically changing or more volatile situations. And then we'll get into a few personal questions. So what would be your recommendations for anybody wanting to expand internationally? Listen, listen to the people on the ground. They are the ones that are going to tell you what's, what's really happening politically and economically. You really, really have to be in touch with the locals to understand the, 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 the market. Know when to get out of that market. Know what do I mean by that? While a market is very, may look very lucrative, there may be political obstacles that, that just are very difficult to move. And you're not going to be able to get into that market or you're already in that market. Things have gone very well, but you see that the environment is changing. That's happened in Russia. Today, today most of uh, a good portion of GDP is generated from, from the Russian government, not private business. So your opportunities have shrunk significantly there. And of course, it depends on the sector that you're involved in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's great but, but, advice. But I think I think I think the main advice is have a good team on the ground. You have to have a good team on the ground. They are your eyes and ears in the mm-hmm. business. They understand the culture. They understand the language. They understand what is going on. How do you find have, somebody and, on the and ground? And have a framework. Have a framework. Understand when it's time to get out when it's time to enter as well. Mm-hmm. What, are, what, what are the metrics that you have? What are the, what are, what are the milestones that you have for, for that business in that country? Have those in place. How do you find uh, people on the ground? Through word of mouth, through the universities, through contacts that, that you establish over time. Locals that are trained, that not only Western trained, Locals, locals that are trained in the local businesses as well. You hire them, find them. How do you find them? You go into the country and you do your do your research. Spend and meet, some time in the country. Meet people. Spend some time with them. Make sure that you have you somebody could, you really like. Exactly. You could always join the chambers of commerce and what have you. But those expatriate communities are just that. They're, they're, they tend to be isolated. Mm. You really need to get out there into, into the, uh, the local environment, the local culture, mm-hmm. the local business club and businesses. That's, that's great advice. All right. We're, we're really running out of time now, but I want to ask you, what's your favorite foreign word? Normalna. What does that mean? Normalna is, is, a, is a response in Russian, when somebody asks you, how are you doing? Как у тебя? Как дела? Как сегодня? 
how are you? How's today? How are you doing? And the response generally is normalna. Normalna, the literal translation is, is eh, normal. I'm okay. <laughs> and it's reflective of the culture. It's reflective of, of, of Russian history. Remember, the, Russia was, was a land of serfs for centuries, as opposed to when you ask someone in the United States, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Things are wonderful. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, you know, a lot of people in the United States who would answer that way haven't been serfs. They've had a different cultural experience. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and, and that, that goes to the point of understanding the culture. If you understand the culture and the history of the people, that'll give you a better understanding of the language and better command of the language. Ah. Okay, how about favorite vacation? Barcelona. Uh. And, and I would say Dubrovnik is a, is a very, very close second or close number one. Dubrovnik is a beautiful place oh, in Croatia. I've heard Wonderful Croatia is on the Adriatic. fantastic. So that's on my list. Another beautiful, another beautiful place is Montenegro. Oh, great. <laughs> I, I could go on. I could go on with, <laughs> with, with a lot of places. But Barcelona is, for me, is number one. Spain is number one. I love Spain. I did my graduate studies in Barcelona. So I, 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 know, I know the country. I know the city very well. Excellent. So if anybody would like to reach you, what how what's the best way to do that reach best way to reach me is by email my email address is a a blanco it's b l a n c o a a so double a double a b l a n c o at e as an echo eight as in the number q is in quebec technologies.com and your website e8q technologies.com excellent excellent if there if there are any chess players watching they would recognize e8q as when the pawn gets promoted to queen I have wondered every time I look at your email, I have wondered what that means. So, okay. <laughs> I am not a chess player. <laughs> One of these days. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam, yes. for being here. It's been a delightful conversation. Um, I really, really thank you, enjoyed Wendy. it. Thank you for inviting me. I greatly appreciate the time that you spent with me and really enjoyed the conversation. I did too. So if you're out there and you're listening, Adam and I met through an organization called IERG. It's International Executive Resource Group, which is a gathering of people who have had international experience. And there's chapters all over the place and they come together, a lot of them still for virtual meetings that um, you can get involved with and meet other people that have that global view. It's been very refreshing to me and I really enjoy the connections that I've made from them. So again, if 
you know anybody who might uh, be interested in this podcast, please send it on to them and tune in to us next time. We'll, we'll have somebody new to talk about another experience in global marketing. Thanks so much <laughs> for tuning in. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.